Welcome to the highest road, a path that leads from within our own being, where each one of us has a direct and living connection to Source or God. The highest road, the courage to claim our power and to take responsibility for our choices. We live in an interconnected universe. Every loving thought we think, every step we take in the direction of self-empowerment and spiritual integrity, not only moves us forward, but improves the world at large for everyone. The world is as we are. So welcome everyone to this week's podcast. Last we were speaking about free will and also about allowance. And it seemed to lead naturally to the whole area of how can we be of service in this world. Many people listening to this podcast, just as no more than ourselves here, will have had a sense of wanting to be of service to the world, wanting our lives to have meaning. And it sometimes it can take a while to understand what is the best way of being of service. Certainly for me in my early days, I had the sense of saving the world or having a special mission or focusing on certain groups or people that I could sort of speak the truth to them. And as I've hopefully matured, I've become to realize more and more that being of service in the ultimate sense is the state of peace and the state of mind that I embody rather than what I necessarily do. You know, many spiritual people that I have met feel that they were meant for a higher purpose. And, and I certainly include myself in that. As you said, Rose, lately I've been feeling that nagging desire for a higher purpose is actually a desire toward oneness and co-creation with Source. And the only way to do that is to stay focused within. I find when I do that, if there's anything that the universe needs from me, it'll manifest. And that nagging feeling is really just a desire to be one with Source. Absolutely. And it's not necessarily that we won't do anything in the world. Quite often we will. But it's the sense that that comes from gradually deepening our connection with Source and also the things we've been talking about, the capacity to assess our thoughts, to have a healthy mindfulness about the way we use our energy and the way we use our the way we think about other people, the way we speak, to have a sort of, to take our own spiritual inventory in a kind and loving way. Our service will very often express itself through action in the world. What is the motivating factor behind that? And that's something I've looked at a lot myself. Am I helping others, in inverted commas, out of a sense of lack in myself or of wanting to be important or feeling that I know what's best for them? Or am I just helping them in a sense by not trying to help them on that level, but just being at peace and knowing my own connection with source, being able to respect that in somebody else? It's a bit like the Indian greeting of Namaste. And I know myself, if I've been in the company of somebody who embodies that peace, I find my own answers. And I know where to go myself. But if somebody tries to fix me, then I feel it's, it's like an interference. And I, I think for a lot of us on our spiritual path, the initial feeling of wanting to be of service 
and to help can express itself in fixing or in rescuing. And I just think it's a question of learning through life that that isn't actually helping. Talking about wanting to be important, I once attended a spiritual class and the topic rolled around to planetary service contracts. A member of the class asked how he could tell what his planetary mission was. I remember the teacher's response to this day. She said, mission, shmission. Your mission's to be of service. Suppose you did have a big planetary mission, and it already happened. Suppose it was to stop a five-year-old child from running out into the street and getting hit by a car. You know, flash forward 30 years, and that child finds the cure for cancer. You will never know that was your great mission. And she asked him how he felt about that, and he said he felt a little bit disappointed. And she told him to look at his ego. Your ego might not be getting served, but the planet is. You know, almost all the people in the class, including myself, had the same question. And I was really glad I wasn't the one who asked. I just feel that's part of, hopefully, the the path of maturity, that we begin to realize that our greatest service can be expressed in the outer world, but our greatest service is in holding the highest frequency we can. And for me, somebody who explained this in a very accessible way was Dr. David Hawkins, who did a lot of work. He was actually a psychiatrist, a very, very eminent psychiatrist, but he was also quite a mystical, spiritual man, and he worked a lot with kinesiology. And through his career, he began to calibrate or measure in kinesiology the frequency of different states of mind. So he started off doing this, and he would measure, for example, the frequency of anger or of apathy or resentment, of kindness, of love, of peace. And he gradually came up with this scale of consciousness. The numbers aren't to be taken as mathematical principles. They're more to indicate relationship. And what he came up with was that up to a certain point, which he said 200, but I think the numbers are arbitrary, but up to a certain point, if where people are filled with anger and resentment and guilt, apathy, that they are taking more from the environment than they are giving, that they are needing from the environment, that they are, you know, they aren't contributing. They're doing the opposite, if you like. And listen, most of us have been in those states. So it's not talking about a particular person, but it's more the sense when we're in those states of apathy or resentment or anger Even if we think we're right and we're saving the planet, but if we're trying to save the planet out of a feeling of anger, we're really not helping anybody. So there was a cutoff point then between, he just said, point for 200 to 500. And again, it's more symbolic than the actual numbers. Around 200, you start to contribute more to the environment than you take away. And with the lower part, the part under 200, the main characteristic of any of us when we're in that state is a reluctance to accept responsibility for our lives. We're in blame or we're in resentment. And then when we begin to start to take responsibility for our lives, and as you and I know, Matt, that is a lifelong process to take responsibility for everything. We can start with a few things, but sometimes it takes a while to embrace our responsibility. But as we begin to, then we're starting to contribute more to the environment than we're taking. 
And some of the characteristics, for example, in that particular phase, if you like, between 200 and 500, are characteristics such as willingness, reason, love, all of those qualities and many others that we consider as desirable. As we consciously begin to cultivate those, our frequency rises and we are contributing more to the environment. And then the higher level is where he goes from love. And it isn't just love of your pet. It's beginning to become the kind of love that's more universal, love and joy and peace. And when we cultivate those qualities, which again is a lifetime's work, we are at the point where our presence, and he's measured this with with his kinesiology, can influence vast numbers of people without our even trying. And another thing that he calibrated and which corresponds with why I think what even quantum physicists have found is that power or the effectiveness or the energy quality of what we might consider positive emotions like love is an order of magnitude more powerful than the energy of hate, for example. So if we cultivate those qualities in ourselves without imposing on anybody, without imposing our ideas on anybody else, we can have a beneficial effect on the environment around us. If you're in the presence of somebody who's full of self-righteousness and anger and that, and, and you think of somebody who, generally speaking, is, radiates peace or kindness, we can feel the influence of those people, even if they never say a word to us. So it really helps me to understand that my greatest contribution, as well as being kind in everyday life, I think that's all very important, is to raise my own frequency by self-monitoring, by noticing where I'm out of alignment, by spending time in quietness, by being kind. So there are many ways we can do that, but understanding that that is actually very, very valid service to ourselves and to everybody around us, even though it isn't dramatic. You know, I agree totally with that, Rose. When we're centered and we're at peace, all those opportunities come to us. You know, I think everyone has their very own unique way of service. Whether they're saving whales, animals, working for human rights, volunteering in homes for the elderly, working in soup kitchens. Every day there are people doing great works of service. I think those planetary services, while not as glamorous as the great spiritual teachers writing books and filling up auditoriums, they're every bit as valuable. And it's very much the spirit in which they are done, the spirit in which they are performed, really. That you can be, as you say, in a soup kitchen or may not even be obviously doing something that's altruistic. I mean, you could just be doing your normal job. But the way, the attitude you have towards the people, you could be serving in a cafe or in a shop, but the attitude you have, and if you can convey without words, we can sense where people are respectful of us and where there's a kindness. And sometimes, I, I actually begin to wonder sometimes if our greatest acts of planetary service are when we're not even thinking about being of service, because it's so easy to get into glamour and self-importance and want results. And maybe it's the times when we're just naturally being kind or naturally smile at somebody. Who knows the effect of that? I, I just have seen in myself and others, as you say, it can be a grandiosity about planetary service. And I think one of the potential 
issues with that is that we, if we want to be important and have planetary service, we need somebody to save or somebody to correct or point out the errors of somebody's ways, whoever they are. And that sets up a polarity of us being different or better than the others. We were speaking about the law of one recently. Ultimately, we really do need to get to the point where we recognize, not just intellectually, our oneness with everything. And if we see somebody as lesser or needy in a way that we're we're separating ourselves from them, then that's not coming from that place of oneness. And we may be the ones who need more healing than the person we think we're serving. Well, that's brilliant. And borrowing another set of concepts from David Hawkins, his book, Power Versus Force, and he contrasts power with force. And in our world, we often confuse the two because sometimes we can think of power as being power over somebody or being a powerful person because we're wealthy or because we run a government or whatever. How he defines them is that power, he says, stands still. It's like a standing field that does not move. And it's very much how we become more and more as we connect with our own intrinsic connection to source. When we become strong and anchored in that, we're in it all the time anyway, but when we consciously become strengthened within that and we have the willingness to to see what is not consistent with that, as the Course in Miracles says, our task is not to seek for love, but to seek and find the barriers we've placed against it. So as we begin to let go of the barriers, the jealousies and the anger and the ego issues, what's left, like Michelangelo's statue, is the true essence of who we are. And that is actually true power, whereas force always pushes against something. It's always in opposition. So if we want to do planetary service and we're out there converting the heathens or saving the downtrodden or convincing other people of the wrongness of their views and the rightness of ours, that is forceful. It's force. It's not coming from a position of power. And it's also not acknowledging the power, the intrinsic power of the other person. I find that a very useful analogy to remember. Am I being in power or am I forcing in any way my concepts or ideas or judgments on another situation, even if I'm full of self-righteousness, which is always something to look out for anyway. But the more we think we're right, (laughs) the more we need to look. You can be puffed up if you're sort of full of self-righteousness and your mission And it can make you blind to the intrinsic wholeness of the other person. When I walk into a room, I can feel a person who is actually being in their power. They're standing in their power. They're being at peace. It's the person who's quiet, who's happy, who's listening without judgment, having respectful conversations. And it's not a way we think of power in our society. And actually, again, in the same book, Hawkins writes, to reach maximum power, kindness can permit no exceptions. Kindness can permit no exceptions. And I remember hearing a Course in Miracles teacher saying, when you get to that level of kindness and compassion, that you would have as much compassion for the victimizer as you would for the victim. And that can be a very hard thing. But to realize that, for example, that anybody who victimizes anybody, whether it's an abuser or a murder or whatever, they could not do that unless there was a lot of pain in them. So it's not that you're condoning their action, 
But if you find yourself feeling sorry for the victim, but condemning the victimizer, then that's still a polarity. So Hawkins actually talks about that level of pure love, but coming into the pure love is a non-judgmental forgiveness as a lifestyle, exercising unconditional kindness to all persons, things, and events without exception. <laughs> and that is he, what he describes as a point of power. Wow. Again, that's, that's very <laughs> powerful. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when I walk into the same room and see another person who's loud and judging everybody and telling everybody their faults, I have to remind myself to stay centered and mindful because it's very easy for Mac to label that person as intolerant and other judgments that come to mind. I want to go up to him and start telling him all his faults. You know, I have to stay away from labels. Labels lead to judgments for me. I remember a line from The Course in Miracles. Judgment is the process on which perception, but not knowledge, rests. I think I may know what's going on with a person, and I'm about to tell them, <laughs> but in actuality, I know very little about what's going on with that person. But the willingness to admit that is a relief for other people, that people don't feel they have to have it perfect. None of us has it perfect, or we would be in that very highly enlightened state. But it's the willingness each time, as the Course Miracle says, to become aware of the blocks we have put up against love's presence. And when we become aware of them, we don't even have to chop them down. The awareness itself helps them to release. And this can be challenging because in some ways it's much easier to be the sort of John Wayne character in your life, going and rescuing everybody or being the hero or the, the, the rescuer, the savior. There's a drama and a glamour about this. Whereas the kind of thing we're talking about that Hawkins is talking about, that I think it's undramatic and it's taking our own inventory, being willing to see where we're out of alignment. As the image I've used before, where are we out of tune? That that's the real work. And as we begin to do that, it's like Michelangelo's statue as he chops away the what doesn't belong. Then the true essence of who we are begins to be more available to us, if you like. And in that knowing, we will know what actions are of service to other people without getting an ego-driven energy behind it. And I think when we, we come from that level, I think our actions and our words will be received much better by other people because they won't feel that we're the rescuer rescuing them, which implies a judgment. You know, it just comes back to the inner work, which is using the tools in our spiritual tool set and taking a few steps forward on the highest road. When we are mindful, non-judgmental, in allowance and oneness, opportunities of service will just come to us. You know, Rose, I think we might want to talk about soul contracts here. You know, that's the idea that I certainly feel is true, that there are people we have known in the past or between lives where we agreed to come here and work together for some purpose. I would certainly agree that we have contracts in that sense and agreements. And as you say, when we meet people in this life, we can often just have an instant recognition that we know them from before. And sometimes, of course, that's wonderful. And then another time it's like, oh, here they come again. A lot of teachers I would respect would have that idea that we have a purpose in coming into this embodiment. 
and that we often enroll, if you like, other people to play roles for us. Like a very, very common image is to think of ourselves as directors of our own movie or our own drama. And we come in to explore different aspects of consciousness or different aspects of growth. And we're like a troop of actors for each other. And we play out roles for each other. And we reflect things back to each other. We learn from each other. And sometimes it is to do some big work in the world, if you like. Quite often it isn't. But there are definitely soul contracts that we have. And I'm sure that you know, if we think of the people close to us that, you know, particularly family or people we've worked closely with, that we will have worked with them at other times and maybe not in the same role. Like you might have been a parent one time to this person, another time you might be a partner. I think we travel in groups, like a, a group of some kind, and we have work to do together. I think where the risk can be, again, is when we identify ourselves with a label and we call ourselves this group or that group, as if we've got a special mission, more special than everybody else. Um, and I think both of us have experienced some of that and learned from it. But I, I definitely, yes, definitely we have a contract. And ideally, we would be able in this life to come to a place of peace with anybody that we feel challenges with, because otherwise we may have to meet again. And you certainly want to get it now and not have to do it again. <laughs> I got a few of those in my life. <laughs> and sometimes it's not the length of connection with someone. Again, the Course in Miracles talks about three levels of teaching and in the understanding that we're all teaching each other all the time. And one of them can be a very brief encounter that you have with somebody, maybe in an elevator or somebody bumps into you. And that has the potential to be a holy encounter just as much as a lifelong relationship. And then there would be the, the short-term relationships you might have with somebody that you were at college with or at school with, or maybe your first romance or whatever, that it's not lifelong, but for a shorter period of time, you have a lot to do with each other. And again, there's potential for a huge amount of growth. And then there are the lifelong contracts, if you like, and lifelong relationships where the potential for growth is incredibly even if it's not obvious, because often those lifelong contracts as we're growing and until we reach peace are the ones that will drive us the most crazy. They're the ones that reflect back things to us we have to learn. But every encounter has the potential to be a sacred encounter, depending on, on our attitude, no matter what the other person thinks. I mean, when we think about contracts we have with other people, Something that often comes up is the idea of a soulmate, and it's usually meant in the context of a romantic relationship. And I feel that's actually limiting the idea of a soulmate. I feel that anybody that we have a contract with or that we share our lives with, whether it's as a parent, teacher, or friend, they are all in one sense soulmates. They are companions to our soul. And I just feel that the whole thing of soulmates in the sense of twin flames or the one special person who's going to make us happy, I feel that can be very easily become a trap and can become a glamorous kind of romanticization of something that is ne not necessarily helpful. The idea that there's one person there who's going to fill us, that we can't live without this person, or that together we have the mission to save the world or whatever. 
I mean, we can have a very deep, loving relationship, but the idea of a soulmate, I think, can become very distorted and maybe something that isn't healthy. You know, I feel that if we think of ourselves as incomplete without a life partner, I think we're doing ourselves a major disservice. We are diminishing our personal power of thinking of ourselves as anything less than whole, as each one of us is a sovereign, complete being unto ourselves. But if we think of life as a classroom, thinking somebody is our soulmate is a tremendously valuable class in a sense, because we we think, oh, this person is going to complete me and make me happy. And then we move in together or we get married or whatever. And then all hell breaks loose because we reflect everything back to each other. And so sometimes that can be the greatest teaching. And maybe it's a trick that our mind plays or our soul plays to get us together so that we will learn a lot from each other. Nobody like a life partner to show you every single thing you need to learn about yourself, that's for sure. (laughs) And there's no greater marketing tool for a new age teacher to fill auditoriums or keep books flying off the shelves than to mention the topic of soulmates in their advertising. As anyone who doesn't have a life partner wants one, and some people want to know if they have the right one or how they can find a different one. (laughs) I think the best way to have a life partner is to be solid in your own personal power and walk your path. Then you will likely find a like-minded soul to walk your path with. But, you know, acknowledging that that's not easy in a culture that promotes romantic love and you think of all of the romantic songs. So it actually takes tremendous strength to be willing to let go of that kind of romantic idea, fading out into the sunset together. Um, so it does take courage and life, as somebody says in Ireland, life learns you, life teaches you. <laughs> it doesn't always work. And yet not to deny that we can have deeply fulfilling relationships once we're not kind of feeding off each other energy and there's a respect for each other. I mean, you and I are very fortunate, Mac. We have very, very long term and very happy relationships, but it's not based on need. It's based on respect. I mean, sometimes we will need each other. I think that's okay. But it's based on respect for the other person's autonomy as well. And the other person has their own journey and their own private world if they want to. You know, we're not trying to be codependent. And I certainly, for me, I found it took me a while to learn that when I was younger. I think we covered most of everything we wanted to talk about, Rose. Anything else? Um, Again, returning to David Hawkins' book, which I would highly recommend. Again, he talks about the influence or the impact, how our thoughts impact and influence the world around us. And one of the things that he does say, actually, is that the difference in power between loving thoughts and a fearful thought is so enormous as to be beyond the capacity of the human imagination to even comprehend. So that's a beautiful one. And following from that, he has a paragraph here. Every act, thought, and choice adds to a permanent mosaic. Our decisions ripple through the universe of consciousness to affect the lives of all. Lest this idea be considered either merely mystical or fanciful, let us remember that fundamental tenet of the new theoretical physics. Everything in the universe is connected 
with everything else. And then just later on, he says, every act or decision you make that supports life, supports all of life, including your own. The ripples we create return to us. This, which may once have seemed a metaphysical statement, is now established as a scientific, confirmable fact. That's really a great way to end this session, Rose. Thanks for sharing the Hawkins material, because reinforcing that all our acts of service, great or small, ripples out to the universe. You know, I want to thank everybody for listening today, and we'll be talking again soon. Namaste. You've been listening to the Highest Road Podcast. You can contact us at highestroadpodcast at gmail.com. Please visit us at www.thehighestroad.com for related articles, tools, and information. We welcome questions and your feedback.